please, please, please do not overfeed your dog. Don't do it. Do not do it. Hear me now. Do not do it. Do not make your dog round. It is not cute. Don't do it. Don't do it. Yeah. No roly-poly puppies. Oh, he's lazy. He is disobedient. He doesn't listen. He's stupid. He's clumsy. Hey, Drew here. Before we get started, I want to tell you about our sponsors for today's show. First, Wonder Walker. A walk with your dog should be, well, a walk in the park, not a tug of war. The harness you choose should be safe for both you and your dog. As you know, I train dogs professionally, and the truth is that sometimes even trainers need a little help. For me, that means I prefer it when the dogs I'm training wear the best equipment. When it comes to harnesses, I ask my clients to get the Wonder Walker body harness for their dog because it will help me, them, and the dog meet our training goals as quickly and as safely as possible. I discovered Wonder Walker in 2009 and I've been using them ever since. The harnesses were developed in 2003 and they're still handmade by the same family-owned business in Seattle. They're the original no-pull harness. Here's why I'm such a huge fan. First, because the harness has two leash connections with five points of adjustment, so it's simple to fit for any size and breed. Second, since they fit properly, they help prevent injury and pain, which are common occurrences when using these mediocre harnesses. The bottom line, Wonder Walker has been my go-to harness for over 15 years. Visit wonderwalkerbodyhalter.com and use promo code LOVEDOG at checkout for 10% off discount. Love Dog is one word. That's wonderwalkerbodyhalter.com. Promo code LOVEDOG. Also, I see and use a lot of treats in my line of work as a certified dog behavior consultant. And to be honest with you, a lot of them are pretty terrible. That's why I use Fig and Tyler's treats when I'm training dogs. FYI, everyone, they have a generous discount program for pet professionals and pet parents. And they've established an exclusive discount program for our listeners of the podcast. The treats come in a variety of proteins, pet pro-sized bags that last, and morsel-sized treats that are perfect for training. Fig and Tyler treats are made from single-ingredient, USDA, human-grade inspected meat. That aligns with my personal and professional values. They're also great for managing weight issues, and it allows me to be careful with those dogs who have specific allergy concerns and dietary issues. For me, Fig and Tyler is peace of mind in a bag. No mystery ingredients, no additives, no fillers. They offer a wide variety of treats like chicken hearts, duck liver, tilapia, beef liver, and goat's cheese. They also offer custom bundles so you'll be able to mix things up a bit. I love that about this brand. So I say let's treat dogs to what I know to be the very best treats. Industry professionals will love the Pet Pro perks. Pet parents will love the smile on their dogs' faces and the special discount program. Please sign up on their website today. You'll be glad you did. Visit figandtyler.com. F-I-G-A-N-D-T-Y-L-E-R.com. Promo code LOVEDOG. Most importantly, enjoy. Now, let's get on with the show. So, general prevention tips. You know, I'm a quality of life doctor, so it means that my practice is focused on providing physical health and that I want, like you do, for you to be able to hang out with your dog where they feel good and you feel good and you get to do all the things you want to do. Learn how to look at your dog. Are they comfortable? Do they have the right energy level? Are they happy? Are they enjoying some benefit to being alive every day? 
Hey, Drew. Hey, Mark. How are you? I'm pretty good. Welcome, everyone, to episode five. I'm Mark Drucker, and I'm your host along with Drew. I'm the founder and the business guy behind Love Dog, and I also just happen to have loved dogs all of my life. And a couple of years ago, I sensed a yearning for some solid, credible information, and that's why I started Love Dog. And Drew, the reason I'm telling our listeners about this is because I want them to know that when I chime in with either questions or comments, they'll know I'm coming from the vantage point of the everyday dog lover. I'm not a dog professional like you are. You are the dog professional, and you're coming from a different place, and hopefully it's a good marriage for our listeners, right? Mm -hmm. I do. Let me just say that this interview with Dr. Marie Bartling, I think it's huge. I learned a ton. I think our listeners are going to learn a ton. It's critical information. It's stuff we need to know if we want to be good dog parents. And the big problem around pain is that the dogs don't always signal to us that they're in pain, right? So we don't know. They could be wagging their tail. We think they're happy. And it could be for another reason entirely. I think the big takeaway here is pay close attention from day one. I just love when Dr. Bartling says, quote, learn how to look at your dog so you can see if they're enjoying some benefit to being alive every day. Look at your dog and know what joy looks like. And to me, that's the whole point. That's it right there in a nutshell. You said it, Mark. And for our listeners, if you're new, I'm Drew Webster. I'm a certified dog behavior consultant, professional trainer. And I agree, Mark, this is such a practical episode. And, you know, we've had a few episodes where I've known a lot of these professionals and it's literally changed the way I think about even my own dog and some of my training practices and things I could be doing better, things I can grow and learn from these interviews. So even I have stuff to learn from, you know, being a part of these conversations with this great. A little bit of background Dr. Marie Bartling graduated as a veterinarian from Colorado State University in 2005. She's worked in many different medical practices from Mexico to Alaska and with species ranging from horses, pigs, goats, and dogs and cats. Over the last 10 years, her practice evolved into focus on integrative rehabilitation and pain management, mostly for companion animals like dogs and cats, where she uses joint injection therapy, myofascial care, chiropractic care, acupuncture, and exercise programs in conjunction with medications and surgery to restore pets to physical health. And to me, that's, you know, where we met and we overlapped doing a lot of these training programs. And she was always the missing piece of the puzzle for me, Mark. I would go to these homes with these major behavior issues and I, I didn't even want to start my program until they had seen Dr. Bartling because if the animal was experiencing pain, it can explain so many of the behavioral issues we're experiencing. And so I really hope our listeners get some of these practical takeaways that she just offers up on a platter for them. So listen through the whole episode. There's some really great stuff. And with that, I think we should get right to the show. Here we go. See you over there, Drew. Hello, Dr. Bartling. Hello, Drew. Hi, Mark. Hi, Dr. Bartling. Nice to see you again. Hey there, Mark and Drew. It's great to be here. And we're happy to have you. So let's just jump right in, okay? It breaks our heart when we see our dog in pain. And 
the problem there is that we don't always know that our dog is in pain or we don't always understand the kind of pain that our dog is in. So Dr. Bartling, what are the different kinds of pain that that a dog can be in? Why don't we just start there and then we'll move through the conversation from there? Well, I think that there are different kinds of pain. You said that uh, very well, right? That manifest as different behaviors. And so what I might start with is how do we, geez, what would lead us to think that our dog has pain, right? Some of the behaviors and then what that looks like in, in a different setting. Um, so I think, and that's actually how I met Drew, right? Is that Drew and I work together to help figure out if animals that are behaving strangely have pain. So whether it's an acute pain, like they've been injured, right? Or maybe maybe they ate something they should not have. Whether they have kind of dull, achy pain, like an infection, a urinary tract infection or a skin infection or something. Or maybe what I deal with most commonly, because as a rehab and pain management doctor, I deal with physical pain. I see an awful lot of dogs with arthritis. So those are kind of examples of acute versus chronic pain. And then the worst case, right, when we think that they maybe are just getting old and slowing down, sometimes they have pain because they have a bigger disease, something like cancer. And so I think they're kind of two big buckets, acute pain, right, where it happened today or in the last 48 hours, and then there's kind of chronic pain, where it's really kind of a slow creeping process that changes all the way they see and experience the world and interact with you. And then there's a kind of pain that would come with cancer or kidney disease, or, you know, diseases that are terminal. And maybe they're more obvious, maybe they're easier to spot. If we know that a dog has a disease, they will be looking more. I think the concern is when everything just seems fine to us, that is, and we're not aware that there actually are changes in behavior and that we should be looking more carefully. Yes, and or we sometimes will accept and or assume that it's the new normal because they have this disease, right? That they they are going to experience pain, they're going to feel bad, and there's nothing that we can do about it. That's yeah, sort of accepted amongst like especially aging pets where we sort of think of aging as, you know, pathology of the dog is getting older. Therefore, we accept that slowing down or that decrease in activity or that limp or that, you know, lessening of activities that they used to participate in and just knowing like, oh, aging doesn't have to be pathology. They can age well. Maybe this is a sign of something that has gone undiagnosed or untreated. The other one I think we'll, we'll talk about, but GI issues, gastrointestinal issues can cause pain and discomfort manifesting behaviorally as well as, you know, physically. And then I think there's always the first time that a dog experiences pain and it's new for them and they're startled perhaps. I can remember the first time I think my dog experienced pain, my golden retriever, he had Lyme disease and it was he was acting very strange. And at a certain point he was on the bed and standing up and literally looking at his hind legs, which then let me know, oh, you're in pain. You've got pain back there. And he was confused. Does that make sense? at all. Maybe confusion is the wrong word way to say it, but there was something new going on in his experience. I think that's a perfect way to say it. Uh, one, they don't know where it's coming from. And that's actually not unlike humans, right? You're like, why? 
you some often as we do experience some aging, right? All of a sudden you wake up the next morning after after doing some exercise and you didn't expect to be painful. And you're going, why do I hurt? Right? So dogs do have a similar phenomenon. If they overdo it, if they exercise hard, yeah, they're going to be painful later. Um, and you're totally right. They don't know where it comes from. I mean, in this case, Tucker was his name. <laughs> Tucker had... <laughs> Tucker Drucker. Tucker Drucker had... It's got a nice ring to it. <laughs> Tucker... Tucker Drucker had Lyme disease, and we didn't know it at the time. It hadn't been diagnosed at the time, but it was causing him a lot of discomfort. So it wasn't over-exercise. It was, there was an infe- a bacterial infection going on, and which is very common in Lyme, that it would affect their back, their hind legs. And that's what was going on. I just found it fascinating the way he was going through it and in, a, in his own way, let me know he was going through it. And what are the other things that you saw when he was sore? What do you think, uh, other than looking at his back legs, what did you see? Well, I remember I was, we were home that morning. It was actually an interesting story. And a friend of mine had called to say that his golden had passed away. So it was a very sad phone call. And then all of a sudden, Tucker went into the bathroom and just lied there as though he was depressed. And I said to my friend, I think Tucker heard us talking or something like that. He just seems very depressed. It's all of the sudden. And then I left for the day. I had to go into the city for work. And I came back eight, nine hours later. This was fascinating to me. The way he would always greet me is I would come through the door and he would come to me and he would jump up on me and we'd have a 10 second hug, a bear hug. But this time, and now we're talking a couple of years in, this time he came to the front door, he sat in front of me, and he yelped. He looked at me, and he yelped. And then it was that night when we got onto bed that he was standing there, and he began to look at his hind legs. I'm like, oh my goodness, you're in pain. Something's wrong. So it wasn't the conversation earlier in the morning. There was just something going on. Maybe he became lethargic, whatever the right word would be, but the Lyme was making him both tired, lethargic, and he was painful. I thought the Yelp was genius, that he was so attuned to the way that we would greet one another for two years, or give or take, and then all of a sudden, he sits in front of me, looks at me, and yelps. Can't ask for more than that in terms of communication. (laughs) So you're right. That is extremely clear. And I would say that happens maybe 1% of the time. Oh. So as people, that's what we're looking for. Mm -hmm. We're looking for the dog to cry out in pain. And in fact, sometimes people, well-meaning pet parents will bring me animals and wait for me to do an exam that, that hurts them and makes them cry out. And instead, what we often do is start talking about how the dog is moving, sitting, getting up and down. Or maybe just the anxiety, right? So their eyes might get big. They might lick their lips a little bit. They might shift away from me. Just the really subtle signs that they don't want to be touched. Because a lot of times these are more important. And these actually are the most important signs that we can start to recognize as early signs of pain. Yeah, I loved your story, Mark, because it had two parts for me that if we were just talking about Tucker's behavior and 
Dr. Bartling said, what did you see? And that's really the key is this power of observation. And it is so, so hard to be objective about an animal we see in front of us every day because sometimes it is a slow transition towards that decreased activity. But when you have routines like your greeting and all of a sudden there's a sudden change in behavior, that's a big one for me. Like, why? Oh, what's going on there? Like the dog who's now spending more time downstairs instead of up with the family dog, uh, up with the family where they used to be, you know, in the middle of the living room. Or why are they now on the cool flat floor instead of the cushy bed? And Dr. Bartling and I, we actually shared a client a few years ago named Wyatt, who is a big Newfoundland, and he was quite heavy. But his favorite thing after he would urinate or defecate was ground scratching, which for anybody who doesn't know is where they kick out their back legs behind where they've just gone potty kind of spread that odor out in a way. And uh, he was a very enthusiastic ground scratcher who he would do probably seven or eight on each leg. And that was that first change where I was like, oh, he's only really doing it on his right leg or he's really decreasing the extent of that behavior. So when you start to see those quick changes, that sometimes can be the key where you could get help and treatment early Dr. Bartley, what are some other labels or kind of phrases you hear associated with some of the clients that you've treated for pain? Yeah, um, that's a brilliant question. I call them the buzzwords, right? So, and I train my technicians and I train other doctors to listen for the buzzwords. So there's kind of two big scenarios. One is the older dog, where we hear something like, you know, he's just not himself, He's been slowing down these last six to eight weeks or maybe a couple months. And I think maybe he's just getting old. Okay, well, so I'm gonna ask you a question then. Did he get old over the last six weeks? Right, did his hips melt? What's happening here, right? Um, and so those are the buzzwords that let me know that the pain system has now reached a new level of sensitivity and chronic pain can be kind of, um, an echoing experience, they're slowing down over the last couple weeks, months, right? It's like, that doesn't make sense. That doesn't make sense, right? That has to be a process. Something is going on, right? And so that like is brilliant. And that's kind of the old dog scenario. The thing we have to get past, of course, is that our underlying fear might be that it's a disease that we can't solve whether that's arthritis or a medical problem or what, right? So the next step in that is knowing in early prevention that we solve small problems, not big problems, right? I'm gonna say that again. In early prevention, we solve small problems, not big problems, right? And so it's critical, absolutely critical when you start seeing these physical changes. The other scenario might be like a middle-aged dog where they go do all the things you do. They hike, they go to the dog park, they greet the kids, and all of a sudden, they don't want to do that anymore. Uh, you know, if you have a dog that brings you his leash every day and he doesn't, we have a problem, Houston, <laughs> right? Um, if we have a dog that loves to go to the dog park and all of a sudden he's kind of less social than normal, right? That's, that's a cue. That's a buzzword that says he doesn't like to do that anymore. The other one for an old dog is like somebody will say, yeah, he's a grumpy old man. Guys, that doesn't exist. That does not exist without discomfort, right? Think about the most cheerful grandparent you've ever had. And when are they grumpy? 
When they're in pain. When they're tired and when they hurt. When they hurt. So, yeah, so really take that in. Think about your old dogs now. And then the middle-aged dogs that, like I said, are not maybe physically as active, um, maybe they hesitate. So somebody will say something like, oh, he's getting lazy. He doesn't want to jump in the car anymore. He, he puts his front feet up and then waits for me to lift him. In no place or way is that ever going to be normal in a dog that has always done that before. Yeah. And if they couldn't do that before... That brings us to the young dogs, right? The buzzwords for the young dogs. Oh, he's lazy. He is disobedient. He doesn't listen. He's stupid. He's clumsy, right? And so when we have a dog that doesn't do what we ask them to do, that should be a buzzword, right? It's like, well, okay, is that really the case? Or is there something causing that that we should be looking at closer, I got one more for your puppies. Chill. <laughs> I've had so chill. many dogs come into puppy class like, he's the most chill puppy. I'm like, uh-oh. <laughs> Why? Puppies aren't chill. So I just want to clear something up in that section right there. I have a dog, hypothetically, that's a year and a half old. He's young. He's not in middle age yet, right? If I heard you correctly... He's just not doing some of the things that I want him or her to do. I think that he or she should be doing these things. And I've tried training, but it's not working. So what I hear you saying is that it could be an issue of just training. I mean, that has to be an option on the table, but it also may not be an issue of just the training There may be a physical impairment. There just may be some discomfort. And the dog has no real way of letting you know that except for not doing what you're asking the dog to do. That's going to take a really conscientious, tuned-in pet parent, dog guardian, to really go there and be that curious. But that's the standard I think we're looking for. It truly is. It truly is. And I think the first rule is, is this something that is new behavior? Did they do it for you before? Could they do it before? Right. But I think this is where I will defer to Drew because you probably get the most calls for this, right? Is that my dog will not do what I want him to do. What do you say, Drew? Well, the reason I know Dr. Bartlett and had had the privilege of sharing so many clients is I won't touch them until they go see her first. (laughs) And when I go to the house, Mark, a lot of these clients will call. And so um, a German shepherd we worked with together, the, the call was, she's really weird about the stairs in the backyard. And I go to the house and they say, okay, she can go up the carpeted stairs in the house. No problem. She can go up the small flight of stairs in and out of the front door. No issues. Backyard is this turn, like a hard turn until a steep set of wood stairs. And my brain immediately went, okay, German Shepherd, probably going to have some pain going on there. So there's genetics that we'll talk about. That doesn't mean all German Shepherds are in pain. What it means is we have genetic predisposition towards certain um, things that I'll let Dr. Bartling talk about. But also, the dog would do the behavior they said the dog would not do under other circumstances. And so things that were different from powers of observation were grip, flooring, 
carpet and the way the dog presented. So the dog was in the middle of play in the backyard, moving very freely and comfortably seemingly. And then that behavior of pushing off the back legs to go up a steep staircase, we got a hesitation. I saw the dog back up and get what I call a running start. And then she could clear those stairs with a lot of encouragement. And to their credit, they were trying to do nice things. They were trying to lure her up there with food and things like that which then we run into the problem of, you know, coercion, where the animal's doing something they wouldn't otherwise do unless they're being bribed. And so it does take what you said, Mark, somebody being attuned to really go, whoa, there's something going on here. And so I didn't start a behavior training plan with that dog, Mark, until they would get cleared from a health perspective. Mm -hmm. And that's the importance of professionals working together and networking is having somebody they can turn to and say, I really want you to go and see this veterinarian, not just a general practitioner, but this person who's specifically going to look at your dog in this way. I think the I'm just the lay person here. I'm not the professional. But if I had to give any advice to a new dog parent, it would be from day one, be vigilant. Be, in a sense, hyper-vigilant. Tune in, attune, watch that dog always. And get to know that dog, how that dog behaves in the house and moves around that house, outside, how they run around, so that when there's a change, even a small change, you're like, oh, that's different. And you keep an eye on it for a day or two or three, assuming it's obviously not an emergency. And then you can go have it checked out. I just think you have to watch. Like they're one of your kids because they are. I think that's what it is. And as we go forward with this podcast and we have more and more of these interviews and I learn more and more about it, it's just tune in, check in and watch. I love that. Yeah. Yeah, thanks. Because the thing about it is that some of these dogs just can endure a lot of discomfort. Yeah. And they're not going to cry out. And they're not going to look at you funny. They're going to fake it. Maybe they want to please you. I, I don't know. You guys know more about that than I do. But they might be in pain. And it would be a really good thing to know, wouldn't it? Yeah. So I'm going to take that up a notch, um, right Please. with your permission. <laughs> so I, I love what you're saying, right? Like, geez, we have to be so careful and, and paying attention. So my best example of that is that I work with a lot of sporting dogs, a lot of high drive dogs, right? Dogs that hunt and hike. And we live in Colorado. Dogs do everything here, right? So if I had a way to help you make that even more simple, it is kind of the basics of how a dog sits, stands, and moves. So in general, dogs should be able to sit squarely. They should be able to sit comfortably with all their limbs underneath them and fold them up in flexion and be able to get up and down comfortably and with symmetry, right? So whenever you start seeing a dog that is maybe sitting cocked off to one side, it might be he's just chilling, but it might also not be. And so what I would ask you to do is like, okay, well, so test that scenario. That's not hard. Get some treats. See if you can get him to reset into a square position. And then test that a few times. And then test that if you think maybe you're starting to see some discomfort with sitting, then check it after they've exercised, right? So number one, can they sit comfortably? 
And sometimes people will say, you know, geez, how big of a problem is that? My owner will come in and say, so he's sitting funny. It's okay. I don't need him to sit square. Uh, Okay. So I'm going to flip that around and say, so what if you can't sit down comfortably? How big of a problem is that? If you, the human. Yes. Yes. It's a big problem. Yes, absolutely. It tells you like, oh my goodness, you can't get comfortable in any position ever, right? So that's number one, is they should be able to sit comfortably. Number two, they should be able to get up and down with symmetry. If they're always pushing out of one side or the other, that can be a sign that they can't use that part of their body for some reason, whether it's painful or maybe it's weak, uh, underdeveloped, not used well, injured. There can be a lot of different reasons, uh, right? So I, I love what you're saying. Be mindful and watchful, but also use kind of your common sense, right? They should be able to get up and down and to sit square, easy. And don't hesitate to take action after you've looked at the situation and you've come to the conclusion something has changed or something isn't quite right here. Take action, call the vet, go check it out. Yeah, absolutely. And then the next level, right? So sometimes I will have owners come to me and say, he's not doing it right now. I can't believe he's not doing it right now. I know there's something going on. So remember that when dogs come to the vet, they're usually either really excited, they're meeting a whole bunch of people, there's all kinds of food, there's fun dogs, there's all kinds of cool stuff going on, right? So their adrenaline will absolutely kind of get distract them from any pain Mm -hmm. they might have. One, two, it can be hard to evaluate them for symmetry when they're, you know, hauling across the lobby right? On the slick floors and all that stuff. Three, if they really are sore, uh, sometimes they don't want to hang out. Sometimes they don't want to be examined. They don't want to be touched, those things. So what you can do at home is take pictures and video of any you think is suspicious. Take a picture. Do me a favor. Do your vet a favor. Take a picture from the front and from the side of your dog who's sitting and standing. And then take a video right? Ask someone to help you take a video from the side, ask him to sit and lay down and get up and then take video of going up and down the stairs because that everyday activity is actually what we want them to be able to do. And statistically is what we have learned, even as veterinarians, that we can all see. That we can see even as pet parents and dog trainers, that people who love dogs, that we can see when they can't function correctly. Yeah. Right. And then you have a baseline to compare it to. Then you can bring it to me as your veterinarian and say, see, <laughs> right. And we can. We well, can that's all see. so helpful too, Dr. Bartling, because like you just said, seeing a dog in their normal environment is a big one for dog trainers as we often meet these dogs in highly stressful environments. Or let's say the dogs, like so many of the clients I see, have an aversion to even going into the veterinary practice. So they're already nervous or scared or they're, you know, hypersensitive to that environment and fearful, then they're going to present completely differently than that dog in the living room or that dog in the backyard or in the comfort of their own apartment or wherever it is that you call home. So having those baseline videos is great. And you actually have some great educational pictures on your website, which is helpspotrun.com. And if you click into the pain posture gallery, you can see some good examples of what Dr. Bartling's talking about there for sort of an educational framework, because what you're talking about is a teachable skill. Like you said, you teach these to your technicians, you teach these to your clients. And so to Mark's 
point of you have to be attuned, really knowing what normal dog sitting should look like and stand should look like, that gives you a really good baseline where you're, you know, we're distracted as people. But if you know, like, huh, that was weird, that looks different than normal, then it's really going to ring in for you. For me, a lot of those behavior changes are the clue where a lot of dogs will present changes in behaviors before showing or, in Mark's example, yelping or giving us a clear indication that they are experiencing pain. So that might be things like increased respiration. We were talking before the show, Dr. Bartlin and I, about different types of equipment, which maybe we'll go into a little more in depth, but I have several dogs where I'll show them their leash and they move towards me very happily. And then when I present their harness or something that goes over their body, they might turn and walk away from me. If I set that piece of equipment down, they come closer to me. So the behavior is contingent on whether or not I'm presenting that piece of equipment and how they feel about that situation. And so that might just be, oh, that dog is being weird, but it also might be a clue that that dog doesn't like the way the leash pressure feels when it's on their body or that that's pushing on them in a certain way. So we've got to really get good at watching those. And the subtlety of canine communication is a really good thing to learn about. And there's books and resources all over the internet that talk about dog body language. And that's something all pet parents need to be attuned to because that is how dogs communicate. They don't usually yelp. They usually tell us by holding their breath or getting really still, or some dogs, they'll displace and get really happy and in our faces, (laughs) which we'll talk about more in detail in our case study, but that's that paying attention that Mark was talking about. Well, what also comes to mind for me is something that you said a little earlier, Dr. Bartling, that, you know, dogs aren't that much different than humans, and maybe animals aren't in this context I'm talking about. And what I mean to say is that think about when you're in pain. I'll think about when I've been in pain. You know, in my life, I've had a great deal of back pain when I was younger. I've had bad sciatica, you know, but it could just be a headache, whatever it is, right? And then think about when you become distracted. If you go back and look at the period of time that you were distracted and you think about your pain, you weren't thinking about your pain and you weren't feeling your pain. You were distracted, and you were distracted from your pain. The same, I think, is true, which is what you were saying before. Take your dog into a veterinarian's office, have them be in the reception area with six other dogs, have them be all excited and distracted. They're not going to show the same kind of pain. They're not going to present the same as they do at home. So I guess hopefully when you get them into an examination room and things calm down, the doctor can begin to to have a look, right? But the dogs become distracted the way humans become distracted. And in those moments, for whatever reason, that's not what we're going to go into today, but the pain might go away and we might not notice it. Think about this. The other thing that's actually really similar to humans is that the more pain you experience, the more anxious you are that things are going to hurt. And so what's interesting about that is that dogs that have experienced chronic pain and back pain is a perfect example, Mark. Sciatica makes dogs so fearful. I had a one-year-old golden doodle that they brought me for this, you know, strange behavior. And she was walking backwards over the tile floor in the house. 
And uh, she wouldn't go in certain rooms of the house because it had slicker floors and stuff like that. She didn't want to socialize with fast-moving beings, the kids, right, other dogs. So the more painful we are, the more fearful we are. And we can't explain it to the dogs, right? So like what you said, they don't know why they're feeling pain. They don't know why this is happening. And the hardest part is it often happens when they're having fun. If they come up to you and they're really excited and they're like, oh, I really, I really want to say hi to you. And so what you get is, like Drew was talking about, this anxiety that is so happy and they really, they really want to, they really want to, but it's going to hurt. And so they're just not, and they just freeze. And so one of the dogs that I put on the, the website, her name is Blue, and she's a dog that Drew and I both know. And one of the craziest things ever, and I got, I actually got this on camera. So I'm, I'm petting Blue. And so Blue's history is that she's had surgery for her knee and her ankle. We know that she has orthopedic problems that people have tried to address before. But what happens with chronic pain is if you don't use the right medications in the right order, that pain cycle doesn't turn off. And so some of the normal kind of daily anti-inflammatory medications will make them a little better, but it doesn't solve the big surges of pain, right, that she has. So she's a super crazy active dog and she wants to do everything and she's always done everything. So I'm in there and I'm meeting Blue and she looks at me and she's like, mm, are you going to hurt me? She wants to talk to me so bad. She is a coffee table clearing <laughs> dog with her tail. Like it will, it you, you could get bruises from her tail. She loves it so much to meet new people. And so you go to touch her and it's so interesting. So I, I'll, I tend to sit to the side or behind them. And uh, so I'd feel down her, her neck and her shoulders and she was okay with that. And she's watching and she's listening and she's looking at her mom, right? And then I get back down into her back and her knee where she hurts and she starts beating her tail harder and harder and harder and harder. And what she's saying is, please don't hurt me. Please don't hurt me. I'm nice. I'm nice. I'm so nice. Please don't hurt me. Right. So we might think huh. that pain's going to come out as a yelp or it's going to come out as sometimes it really does that they you don't want you to touch them. Or sometimes it's even aggressive. Huh. You go to touch them and they're like, please don't do that. And they'll give you the side eye and then they'll say, please don't do that. And they'll move away from you. And if you pursue them, they're like, no, I'm not kidding. Don't touch me. <laughs> right. Um, so they they talk to us all the time. We just don't always know what they're saying. You've got me thinking about Hank right now and our wrestling matches every morning. And I'm just wondering, we're not going to talk about it now, but I'm curious to know. But once you become awake to it, Mark, it's such a great thing just to have in the back of your head because we make so many assumptions and we do so many storytelling, you know, with our animals of what they love, what they don't love. And we say, oh, they're having an off day. And sometimes that can be a big clue. So much of what I see and treat as a dog behavior consultant is when it manifests in aggression. And a lot of people will talk about that as sudden, like my least favorite word on the planet is fine. She was fine until <laughs> everything was fine until she loved the kids until. And a lot of that is the subtlety of that pain communication being missed. So what Dr. Barlane's talking about of that body weight shifting or the holding the breath or that side eye, these are things we can teach people to watch for, but often are missed. And to be fair, they're very hard to see. 
on certain dogs. For instance, if the dog is not facing you, it's hard to see pupil dilation and, you know, the respiration rate. Um, if you have a fuzzy dog, it's hard to see things like piloerection or the hair sticking up on their back, which often comes. And so a lot of the subtlety that happens before that first bite, those things can be missed. You know, those those subtle cues can often go unseen. And I think what we should do is take a little break and come back. And what I would like to do is kind of go through that case with Blue with you, Dr. Bartling, and we'll talk a little bit about what we both saw and sort of that treatment plan and kind of those outcomes. Okay, so we're going to take that break now. And when we come back, I've got a couple of questions for Dr. Bartling. And before too long, she promises to walk us through that case study with Blue. Back in a bit. Hey, I hope you're enjoying our episode so far. And I want to thank the fine folks who've been helping bring it to you. Starting with Fig and Tyler. Holy mackerel, is your dog ever a little bit of a turkey? Do they ever ignore you? Treat you like your chopped liver? (laughs) That was super cheesy. Wait. Those are all different proteins you can try from Fig and Tyler. Fig and Tyler makes these premium dog treats that I use in my training programs and with my own dog. And you can make your own custom bundles. So try them today. They have a special offer for our listeners. You can go to figandtyler.com and put Love Dog in the promo code at checkout. Pet parents receive 10% off your first order. They also have this amazing program for pet professionals. If you're a pet pro, go to figandtyler.com, look for the Pet Pros tab, and click Join Program. Again, put Love Dog in the referral tab so they know I sent you. You're going to love these treats. So will your dog. That's a promise. And also, Wonder Walker. As I mentioned earlier, these harnesses were developed in 2003, and they're still handmade in Seattle by the same family. And what I know is that a lot of love, care, and passion go into these harnesses to make sure the quality is never sacrificed. They're available in extra small to extra large and an endless range of colors. They make walks with your dogs easier and a lot safer for you and the dog. Visit wonderwalkerbodyhalter.com and use promo code LOVEDOG at checkout. Now back to our show. We are back. And the first question before we go to that case study that I want to ask Dr. Bartling is, do dogs get sciatica? You know what? You're asking a really great question right now. So probably the most underdiagnosed cause of pain in dogs for me is back pain. So sciatica means that the sciatic nerve, the nerve that comes off the lower lumbar spine and traverses down the backside of the hip to the foot, right? That's the sciatic nerve, um, is bruised or impinged in some way. And so that actually can happen close to the spinal cord. Oftentimes, as we have arthritis growing in our spine, as those bone spurs grow, right, then you can have restriction of the sciatic nerve. One of the craziest cases. So I had, um, I want to say she was about eight months old, uh, and she was a greyhound. This dog came in and had been referred to two different doctors and had knee surgery, or at least an arthroscopy, a, a scope, because she was limping in her back leg. And this owner was so mad because the knee surgery was negative. They were checking to see if she had torn her cruciate. And she had not. 
so she, but she had some painful muscles up her thigh and in her groin area. There's a muscle that gets blamed for almost every pelvic limb lameness that's not on an x-ray. It's called the iliopsoas, and it's the same as yours. It's a muscle that attaches to the underside of the spine from the spine. Can you say what it's called again? What's it called? Yeah, again? the the muscle is called the iliopsoas. And so, yeah, a groin muscle that attaches from the spine to the inside of your hip bone, your femur, right? So its job, whenever a muscle is active, it's contracting and it's getting shorter. So its job is to bring the legs forward. So this happens commonly where dogs who run really hard, like I don't know if you've ever run or jumped in a way that was a little more than your body was ready for, right? So when you explosively jump like that, it contracts those muscles. And then as you take off, it can rip them, okay? And that's, that's what a sprain is. So this dog was suspected to have an iliopsoas strain, that she had pain in those muscles of her, of her groin. So what was interesting about that is I saw her and I, we did her exam and she was most tender actually on the top of her back and around where she sits at the junction of the lumbar spine and the sacrum. So literally where you sit. Okay. And I said to her owner, you know, I do think she has, yes, a groin strain. I think her, those muscles hurt anyway. I said, I think this is actually coming from her spine. And he didn't want to hear that. Yeah. Uh, she's young right? She's eight months old. So I said, okay, well, he says, well, I said, the way to diagnose that actually is, is an MRI. You know, we need to look closer. Yeah. A regular x-ray is not going to find this just like a human, right? When you hurt your back, what happens? You go get an MRI. So he didn't want to do it. He says, okay, well, can we just put her in, in rehab exercise? And I said, yes, here's what I'd like to do. Are you okay with, could we, could we meet in like three, four weeks and see if this is if this is helping. So then later she goes to see my physical therapist, right? This is a human trained physical therapist with four year degree who is certified to work on dogs. And I sometimes get her reports like a few days after she's seen them. And I don't always get to talk to her before she sees the dogs. And so in this particular case, just super busy, <laughs> super busy, right? I didn't get her notes and that kind of thing. And the owner comes back and he was like, kind of frustrated. He's like, she's not better. I don't know what you guys are doing, but it's not working. Well, the long story short is my physical therapist said the same. She says, you know what? I think it's in her back. And no matter what we do to try to make these muscles more comfortable, it's not going to get better unless we figure this out. He was really, really determined this was not going to be her back. It took a couple months before he finally went in to get her MRI This dog had congenital sciatica. So she had the nerves come through the pelvis through little holes that are called foramen. And as she developed, those holes were not big enough to let her nerves glide through there. So this is a dog that went through about eight months of growth, okay, where everybody said, you know, oh, it's this, it's that. But she didn't finally get worked up for the right problem, right? And to get actually help with her pain, right? For, for several months, because we were just so determined that it couldn't possibly be sciatica in an eight month old dog. Yeah. So it's a long story to say, <laughs> yeah, you bet they do. They definitely. So get the sciatica. nerves were being compressed. Yes. By the yes. holes that were too small. Yes. And Mark, that happens wow. so frequently where I'll see dogs who, 
and people think they're acute injuries where they're limping one day or they're doing something like that. And after a couple of days, they always opt to go in x-ray where the pain seems to be manifesting. Oh, he's peg-legging that back leg. We'll x-ray that back leg. And it's so hard to convince people that they need to think about the whole connection of the dog. And what I always loved about Dr. Bartling is she's always looking at the movement of the dog and, and, and really observing rather than just throwing out treatments. And, you know, a, a lot of veterinarians are going to listen to the person and say, okay, great, we can do x-rays. So Dr. Bartling, in the way that what Drew was talking about, you're observing the dog, the patient. And in observing this patient that you just told us that story about, because of the way the dog was moving, you could begin to at least suspect that it might be coming from the back. Yes. Just you, because you're an expert, were watching the client, the dog's owner wasn't open to it at that point. End of story bottom line, you were right. It was sciatica. It was nerve pain. And I just want to say that if a dog is experiencing nerve pain from sciatica, the way humans experience that pain, that dog's in a great deal of pain. And it's heartbreaking just knowing that because I've been through sciatica and it ruins your life. (laughs) It ruins your life. So ruins your life. Tell me about that. Tell me about the kind of pain and like how that changes your day. It's, in my experience, a burning kind of sensation running down my leg. It started about the time that I was in my 41, 42. There were times when it was so awful. And after a few months of this, Hmm. just the fatigue, you just lie on the floor and you cry because you're exhausted. You can't take it anymore. Is this what the dogs might be going through, but not really telling us? Oh, they're telling you. We just don't know how to hear it. Right. But here's the best news. Okay. Cause I'm definitely, uh, you know, I'm always looking for the rainbow behind the rain cloud, right? That I can teach you to do this. Drew, Mark, this is not hard. This is absolutely not hard. So when you have a dog that is having back pain specifically, it's just like you can't extend. Okay? So on that same website that Drew talked about, the help spot run and under the pain posture pictures at the bottom, there's a dog and his name is Louie. And I show you how to do it. So you lure them with food and just noting while this is happening, pay attention to how hard it is for them to do this, okay? If they hesitate a little bit, you don't need to tell them three times. They can hear you. They didn't forget how to lay down if they're 10, okay? And they're not stupid. Just notice that if they hesitate to lay down, they might be readjusting trying to do it, right? I don't know the last time you dropped and did 40 push-ups, but like, right? At some point that gets harder. (laughs) Okay. So watch and just so lure them down with the food. And like, what you're going to do is ask ask them to sit. I hold it above their nose, put the food in front of their nose, and then ask them to lay down and put it on the floor and just see how they get there. Do they squirrel their body? Can they lay down? Can they do it? Is it easy? What does that look like? From there, take that food in front of their nose and just bring it forward. So they have to reach a little bit. And what you're doing is you're watching and you'll see Louis do this. You'll see that his back is a little bit saggy. And when he rotates his pelvis forward, all of a sudden he goes, whoop, can't do that. Can't extend the spine. 
Okay. And then when he goes to get up, Louis does this pretty well because the video I have used is after he's had some rehab, some pain management, and some exercise. But what you'll see in a dog like that dog I talked about, the greyhound, is when you have her rotate the pelvis a couple times, it's sore. And when she goes to get up, she's going to get up to the side. She's not going to want to put a lot of weight in that leg. So seeing back pain is not hard when you know what the steps are. And so if you use these tools, take a video, take it into your vet and say, I think this might be a problem. And then you're willing to go ahead and go through the steps of figuring out what that is. This is treatable. Back pain is incredibly treatable if you have the right tools. So that is a perfect segue into my second question before we get to the case study. You said, take that video, take that to the vet. You bet. My question is, in an ideal situation, if I know that my dog is in pain, is my first phone call to the vet, should I see a pain specialist, someone who not only treats with meds or whatever they do, but who is trained to know just like you knew what this is all about? For sure. You see what I'm saying? Like, who's the phone call to? Yeah. What do we do about this? So I think, you know, always you want your your general practitioner involved with your dog's health care, right? When you need something right now, they're right there for you, right? So you're going to do that first. But help them bring the video, right? Because sometimes, like we talked about, in the exam room, it's really hard for them to determine that because the dog is excited, fearful, doesn't want to be examined, and they have 20 minutes or 40 minutes or whatever, right? Like it's a let's get this done kind of scenario. So the, the way you can empower your normal, you know, your general practice vet is, is that. Bring them more information so that they understand what we need to do. And then from there, this is a pro tip. It's not wrong to go ahead and start some pain management at that appointment because I don't know if you experienced this, Mark, but when you have really big pain, it hurts everywhere. And it can be actually hard to figure out where it's coming from. And what happens is, you know, humans, we judge, right? So a veterinarian is judging themselves. They're going, oh my gosh, I can't find this. He seems to hurt everywhere. I don't know where it is. The owner's like, well, can't you figure it out? Isn't this your job? <laughs> whoa, 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 pro tip, slow down. Okay. If you get some of the pain under control, it all of a sudden becomes more clear where it's coming from. And it means that when they come in for their x-ray, if the the dog is less painful, right? And maybe even sometimes I give them anti-anxiety medications, the x-ray is easy to get. And an x-ray is a picture. It needs to be still to make sure it's not blurry. Yeah. So you get much better data, right? And so everybody's worried the animal is not going to be painful anymore. You won't be able to find it. What I've learned is actually it's easier to find it, <laughs> right? And more specific. Um, wow, so that's yeah, brilliant. use that. Thank use you. that. And don't be afraid to go to your general doctor. Yes. Right. And then from there, just because you've asked me a specific question, yes, of course, there are specialists, just like there are for human ailments, right? The doctors that judge movement and study movement are often certified in rehabilitation. So you can actually look that up. They will put it in the show notes. There's a school with a, uh, a finder, right? You can actually search in your state, you know, someone that maybe can help with an iliopsoas strain or a sciatica or et cetera. And then the next level of that, for dogs that have had pain for a long time, there is actually a pain management certification as well. That I didn't do for about the first 10 years of my career. And I will tell you, it was a life-changing thing 
for my patients. I've been doing chiropractic and acupuncture for more than 18 years on all kinds of species, uh, meaning dogs, cats, horses, pigs, goats, cows, chickens. So I, I've tried all of the, the natural ways to help your physical body be comfortable. Here's what I learned. There's very specific chemistry related to that kind of chronic maladaptive pain that creates that burning, that fear, that not normal fear of touch. So you might need that person, you know, a person with that kind of training. Um, and that is, you can look that up through the International Veterinary Academy of Pain Management. There are doctors that are actually certified in pain for dogs. Amazing. This conversation is already incredibly helpful. I've learned a lot. Thank you so much. One thing I just really wanted to say that lovely Doug Louie I've had the privilege of working with also, he was labeled as very dog reactive, which later became a label of dog aggression, that he had these big behavioral outbursts towards dogs, and that they had worked very hard. I should say there's nothing um, his caring people would not do for this dog and did not try and did not pay for when it comes to treatments and training and things like that, but they were stuck. And once we got Louie more comfortable and we found the big goal was, could this dog one day live with a new puppy? I went, oh my goodness, how will we take this quote unquote dog, reactive dog aggression? And through watching, he was actually really curious about dogs. He was really interested in dogs. And over time, as he started to feel better, his behavior started to change. And I should say, just the, the short version of the story is he later lived with a puppy very successfully who he adored and probably made his life 10 times more vibrant and fun and interesting because she was a real joy too. And she became his closest companion. So all of that pain could have manifested into a very solitary lifestyle for that dog. So by treating his pain, his entire well-being and lifestyle completely changed too. And you forever impacted that dog's life just through those treatments. So I'm very happy that he's your example. <laughs> okay. I think this is another place for a break. And then we're going to come back and we're going to go right to that case study. I think now would be a good time to break away for a moment and just mention to our listeners that there are a number of ways, important ways that they can support us. If you're listening and you're enjoying the show and you're finding it helpful, here's what you can do. One, you can spread the word. Word of mouth is the best way to get the message out there. And tell anybody you know, a friend, a family member who has a dog that you think might also enjoy it and find it helpful, just to take a listen. That would be amazing. You can follow us on your favorite podcast app. You can follow us on Instagram and TikTok. Our handle is at lovedognews. That's at lovedognews. And the most fun is you can buy us a cup of coffee. You can go to Kofi, which is K-O-F like Frank I dot com slash love dog and donate to the show which is a great way to support us and we set the minimum donation at four dollars i believe so it's not gonna break the bank as they say all right so we'll get back to the show now just wanted to remind you there are things you can do to help us along 
Okay, welcome back. I think we're going to be talking about a case study right now. I will hand the floor over to Drew and Dr. Bartling. Yeah, we've mentioned this lovely, lovely dog that both Dr. Bartling and I had the privilege of working with. Her name was Blue. We talked about her early in the show. Blue had a diagnosis where she was, from a behavior standpoint, the quote-unquote undesirable behaviors were pretty severe. Two little industry words, pica and coprophagia were two of the biggest problems where she's basically eating things she shouldn't be eating. So sticks, rocks, poop, all those good things. And so where this just sounds like a dog doing something wrong and eating stuff off the ground, it was probably some form of coping mechanism for this dog of trying to find things to do when she felt uncomfortable. And a lot of how this started during our training sessions wasn't the big problem behavior, which was the eating stuff off the ground, it was some of this, the easy stuff. So knowing that she had um, some past medical stuff, I wouldn't ask her to do a lot of gymnastics, like sitting and laying down and jumping and things like that. But she was a very active dog and she would offer some of those behaviors, but she was very uncomfortable. If you ever did ask her to sit, it would be kind of on her side or she would have a straight leg while she kind of shifted herself up. And same with any sort of duration. So whether you had her sit, lay down, or stand, she couldn't hold any position for any period of time. She would quickly shift and move, and, and it would always manifest in like really silly, appeasing behaviors like getting closer to you, touching you, licking you, wiggling her whole butt into you. And you'd just go, oh, blue, and you'd just pet her and go, never mind, I don't need you to do anything, you're so lovely. Um, the other was getting in and out of vehicles, which I was told she was very good at doing at one point in time and so we were trying low level vehicles and things like that and she would always do what i call ask for help where she would go to the barrier and she would either put her front feet in or just her head and then she would look back at you and be like are you gonna do this so you know again those labels might come in is she lazy oh she's spoiled she wants you to do everything for her i'm not saying that's what her people say it's just those buzzwords that often get associated with these dogs who are not complying with the things we're doing. So these are some of the kind of the observations we're noticing during training. And there's these weird things with dogs with gut issues and gut-related behaviors and sound sensitivity, where my brain just starts going, you need to see a rehabilitation specialist. That's like the perfect storm for me. So therein lies Dr. Bartley, and I'll let you take it from there. Yeah. So Blue is um, just an amazing communicator if you speak dog. So yes, she comes in and she's happy and she wants to see you and you ask her to sit and she goes, is there anything else I can do? Right. She will offer you everything else uh, with a smile and a wag and like, just please don't ask me to sit. Right. So the buzzwords in a, you know, in a different scenario might be, oh, she's a freak. Right? They, they think that these dogs are crazy. She's eating things. She licks you all the time. Sometimes they lick the carpet. They lick the walls. When, when a dog has abdominal pain, it's common to hear that. They tank on water, right? So like if you just think about it for a minute, if your stomach hurt and there's absolutely no pharmaceuticals, you have no way to get drugs and you have no idea what to do about it, right? Say your stomach is burning. What would you do? Drink water, <laughs> like, right? So uh, sometimes these dogs get labeled as freaks 
crazy, weird, right? Whenever you hear those words, I start going, "Uh uh-huh, okay. Why would they be freaky, crazy, weird? So she's like that. She's very anxious. So then when you let her just run around the room by herself, she'll go to a wall and she braces herself against a wall. And you'll see that in some of my posture uh, pictures. That is never normal. Think about little kids sit on the floor and play all the time. I don't know if you guys are around the little kids, but like when you go sit on the floor for more than about 20 minutes, where do you sit? Against a wall. Against a wall. <laughs> like, okay, so if that's happening in the first two minutes, Houston, we have a problem. <laughs> like, so she's yeah. a very, very clear communicator of this dog. So what we had to do with her was recognize that her anxiety is related to pain, right? She had a ton of back pain. Uh, And then, yes, those two joints that we talked about were arthritic. So that particular pain receptor is is related to the spinal cord and a phenomenon called wind-up pain. It's not normal pain. It is maladaptive pain. It is pain that is above and beyond. So that particular pain receptor, the NMDA pain receptor, can be augmented with some specific medications, things like amantadine and ketamine. Hmm. Notice I didn't say the word rimadil (laughs) because she needed all of those things. Rimadil addresses inflammation. So as a person who doesn't, I don't want to say I'm anti-pharmaceutical, but I don't want drugs to mask problems. I don't want that to be the long-term solution, right? I am a rehabilitation doctor because I've always worked on, I worked on horses first. I worked on sports medicine animals and I recognize that human and horse athletes run and jump and play for a long time without having the daily pain meds, right? So when I came to dogs, like that's always been my goal is how can I help reduce the pain and then get them off their, off their drugs. So with her, because she has these specific pain receptors active, you do. You have to use the right drugs. It's like chemistry is like a puzzle piece. And if you don't have the right puzzle piece, it doesn't solve it. And so sometimes that takes a little patience and a little bit of a trial to see if that's really truly inside what's happening. So we gave her what I call a maladaptive pain protocol with anti-inflammatories and amantadine. And then for her procedure day, we use sedation and I use myofascial treatment. So I use a shockwave machine. It's not actually like a shock machine for behavior. This is truly a machine that is labeled for the kind of sound wave it emits. And what it does is it breaks down the sticky adhesions in your muscles. I don't know if you guys are old enough to to know this, but like as you get older, you get stiff. And that stiffness <laughs> creates frictions in your joints. You're so kind. And that creates pain too, <laughs> right? That creates pain too, doesn't it? Okay. Yes. And it's actually called glycosylation. Your collagen links to itself and you get myofascial trigger points, places where the, the muscle mm. fibers grab and hold on. And there is no pill in the universe that will make that let go. Okay. So that's a physical treatment. And so I did myofascial release for her. I used my shockwave machine. We got all her muscles stretched out so she can now move her back again, right? That that phenomenon where I said she can't extend her spine. So now, okay, we took care of that big maladaptive pain cascade. We got the inflammation down. We did her myofascial care. She can now stretch and move. Okay. And then uh, same day, we did joint injections for her. Um, I have a number of products that I use that are anti-inflammatory and or a collagen product to help 
the inside of the joint to restore more normal function. So it's, it's a process because there was a lot of process that had already occurred over several years. And so it took about 90 days to start feeling like, okay, I think I can, I check them every month after I do their procedures and like we slowly take their, their meds away, right? And then it could take somewhere around two, three months for the anxiety to calm down, yeah. right? Because they still don't know that it's not going to hurt again the next time they run, play, whatever, right? Like, I don't know if you've ever had food poisoning, but like if it's a restaurant and you drive by it, every time you look at that restaurant, it gets like almost more <laughs> fearful because you're like, right? Like, like what would it take for you to go back in there? How many times? Say you go back with a friend a couple times, right? Like you go back in there 10 times later yeah. and you're still like, I still don't trust this place. <laughs> like, Right? So the process, the process. And you get to see her now, right, yeah. Drew? She's How's doing she doing? So, so much better. And you know that—that that to me is a huge thing. When I meet these dogs, one of my questions is always, "Are you on any medications? Are you on any kind of supplements?" And and it's helpful for me to know because we make so many assumptions in the behavior world over you know how this treatment plan is going and. The reason I love partnering with the veterinary community so much and why it's so important for professionals to do this is it makes you look like a lot better trainer than you are. <laughs> so when you start making that progress where they were stuck for years and years, you just look like a friggin' genius. I'm like, oh, because she's stretching, she's moving, she can do things differently. And then so much of that anxiety and those kind of compulsory almost behaviors stem I believe, from coping skills and displacement activities where she didn't know what to do. So she would do anything just like the wall licking. You know, it may have attributed to some of the eating of non-food items and things like that. And we made games out of it. So this little doggy started doing some canine nose work. I said, well, what's the big problem behavior? She's scavenging things on the ground and consuming. Why don't I teach her how to do that with some contextual information? So we started playing nose work. And Mark, this is where she just sniffs out little treats that I hide in boxes. And eventually we pair her with odors. So she's not looking to consume the things she finds, but look at me and go, hey, I think it's over here, guy. Come open this up. And then I reward her for it. So I basically took the same motor sequence she was doing, the quote-unquote undesirable behavior of finding things on the ground and eating it and saying, let's just do it in this context. And you find these, these, and we just made a game out of it. So once we had that, I think that really helped with some of the anxiety and then some other skills and then just being aware of her limitations. So instead of having her people do sit or down stays, we did standing stays on little step up blocks and stuff, nothing too high up and um, being aware. She also liked to vault off of things that were high. So like teaching her some impulse control games so she wasn't just launching off of stuff. And she's doing so great. She's out living her best life. Her people are wonderful. I think they're traveling and having a great time in an Airstream right now, traveling the world and doing good things. How old is Blue? How old is Blue now? I feel like she was six maybe when I met her. Then I'm going to guess, Drew, is that maybe 15 months ago? Like she's been really doing very well, right? You really can reset that pain system and help them stay healthy, right? And and like a person, you have to keep stretching, mm -hmm. right? Keep doing your exercises, all those things. But yeah. And like a person, it's worth it because they have their whole life ahead of them. 
exactly, Mark, these two dogs, Blue is literally traveling right now and swimming in the beaches and having a great time. And, and, and Louie got to live with a dog and, you know, had a whole different life because mm-hmm. the pain was managed and treated. And so it was life-changing for so many of these dogs that get the right treatment they need and deserve. So I think we ought to shift gears a bit into prevention. Yeah. Yeah? Is it possible to over-exercise a dog? Yeah. Um, well, uh, so I would ask you, I'm going to I'm gonna flip it back and say, have you ever over-exercised yourself? Never. <laughs> you. And did you know it at the moment? Exercise. Of course I have. Of course I have. And, yeah. and there's, and there's, you know, interesting living out here in the mountains in Colorado, I've gone for five, six mile hikes and I've really exerted myself for four or five hours at a time. And I mean, I can't move for 24 hours, but I'm not in pain. I'm just beautifully physically exhausted, <laughs> but that's. How about the next day? It's okay the next day. I'm more concerned about people that go out running and jogging with their dog week after week, month after month, year after year. Let's not even, or let's actually get into the surfaces that they're running on, you know, pavement, dirt, sand, whatever it might be. I'm talking about long-term over-exercising, which eventually can lead to some issues. Yeah, get this. So I have a great client, really, the reason he's great is he, he, he listened and honored what you're saying right now. So he runs marathons and he takes his lab everywhere and he needs his lab to run with him every day or he doesn't sometimes as a human want to keep up on his physical training. It's his accountability buddy. Yep. And so what happened was the same dog, right, uh, would stop when you pick up the leash, the dog would go back in the house. I don't want to go. I don't want to go. And uh, his regular vet x-rayed him, you know, everywhere. And he doesn't have any arthritis. And so they thought, oh, geez, well, what's his problem? Why is he scared? Why doesn't he want to go? Oh, he's definitely scared. He's definitely scared, right? Uh, The long and short of it is I ultimately did some ultrasound. He had some painful muscles that I could feel, right? And we don't honor how much muscle pain really does hurt, mm-hmm. um, right? And the reason I asked you about the day after is that dogs, of course, get sore the day after, just like a human does. And if the human wants to go again and the dog is not in physical shape to do that, we need to think about that, right? You have to build up your stamina in any exercise. So that's that was the deal with this dog, is that he had a number of muscle strains. He had shoulder strains, quad strains, hip strains, back strains. Like he was exercising to a point where he hurt all the time. And he did not want to go. In a puppy, that actually is a question that I get all the time. Can you overexercise a puppy? How much is too much? Right. And so in the in the show notes, we'll leave you some articles to read because I know you're gonna want to <laughs> ask so many questions about that. Yeah, of course. Right. You know, if you have a toddler, a two-year-old, would you take them running? No. Partially because it's hard for them to do. Partially because you know they're made of rubber. Yeah. Right. Their bones are still developing. Uh, and that's true in the dog until they're about a year and a half, depending on the breed size, age, you know, like that particular dog. So I feel like some of the questions we can ask ourselves would be, for example, If I've heard and been told, hey, be careful about the surfaces that you run on, running too much on pavement, on hardtop, that's not good for your knees, that's not good for your back, 
Well, maybe the same is true for your dog. Running for 20 minutes a day, okay, but running for an hour a day, hmm, that may not be good for me and that may not be good for my dog. So again, I think we're in this conversation now about prevention, the same way you might think about prevention for yourself, you might also begin to think about the prevention for your dog. Because I think we tend to think that our dogs are kind of indestructible. And when they're young and they're happy and they have all this incredible energy, yes, but we can overdo it and be aware of that. You bet. And I think a lot of times we go to don't, 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 right? And so what sometimes feels more empowering is to say, well, what do you do, <laughs> right? Um, and so you really can't out-sniff a dog. They can do unsniff walks pretty much longer than you can handle it because <laughs> they will be entertained forever. Right. Uh, that will never hurt them. Uh, and, and that's actually true of young puppies even, uh, right? There was a study where they, they compared dogs on pavement versus playing on the farm and the long sniff, you know, kind of adventure walks are always going to be safer and actually build better muscle tone and bones. Um, and, and along those lines, we as young athletes, as humans, right, if you have a kid in football or um, swimming or something, right, like there's training for that. And there's a set of exercises that you do, right, so that you can be strong and symmetrical. You have to do both sides, mm. right? That exists for dogs too, right? So my young dogs that are going to be athletic, whether it is search and rescue, you know, in Colorado, search and rescue, hiking, um, my mobility dogs that are helping people as a guide dog. Or, or fun stuff, agility, right, fly ball, whatever. There are specific exercises. You can absolutely teach a dog to stand on three legs and have good balance. And balance and the muscles that support your joints in static exercise are actually the muscles that keep you from getting injured. Yeah. Okay. So not the ones that you use when you're running at all. So in terms of prevention, there are three really big things for physical prevention, right? You hit it. Do not do things that you know are going to contribute to bad physics. Okay, no problem, right? Step one. Step two, uh, there are exercises that you can learn. Again, we can provide resources for this, but online with a rehab doctor, even with sometimes dog mm -hmm. trainers that do these sports, they know how to teach you to do exercises to keep your dogs comfortable, the last one is the one that nobody actually ever wants to hear. Please, please, please do not overfeed your dog. Mm. Don't do it. Do not do it. Hear me now. Do not do it. There is a study that was proven in Labrador Retrievers. So they took these puppies that have hip dysplasia, which means their hips do not fit in the socket well. Okay. And they bred these puppies that all have this. Okay. And it means that when your hips don't fit in the socket well, that every time that dog steps down you have concussion, okay? Um, so every time they step down, there's concussion. Every time they step down, there's damage, even when they're six months old. Does that mean pain? Of course it does. Of course it does. But, but here's the thing, just like people with chronic wear and tear, pain becomes more obvious, okay? So what it means in a six-month-old puppy is that they have flares of pain. It doesn't hurt all the time. Sometimes mm. it hurts. It hurts with exercise. It definitely hurts when you do something fun. So they took these dogs that have abnormal bone structure, and then they fed them to see what would happen if you change their body weight, okay? So in the dogs that are fed to be normal body weight, they get arthritis somewhere between three and six times faster than a dog that is 
thin. Okay. Now make that dog fat. Make that normal dog fat. Yeah. Guess what happens? Right? Like you're going to have major arthritis because the bones themselves are carrying more weight, which leads to more concussion. And it turns out the growth rate of those bones and the way that their bones develop has to do with how many calories they're eating. Okay. So the biggest prevention that nobody wants to hear ever is do not make your dog round. It is not cute. Don't do it. Don't do it. Don't do it. Yeah. No roly-poly puppies. In episode two, our Love Dog episode two, we had nutritionist Linda Case on, and I'm hearing her words ringing in the back of my head when she said maximum growth rate is not necessarily optimal growth rate. And we were talking all about those, you know, important development stages and how we had, you know, a tendency to over-nutrient our dogs and overfeed, and we were always going for that cute chubby puppy kind of look and and how detrimental that could be, especially to certain breeds. I think, and I remember that conversation we had with Linda, and I remember saying, and it comes to mind now, that you're with your dog every day and you're not seeing the little changes. And suddenly those little changes accrue and a dog that was thin is now normal. And then the dog that's normal is now overweight. And you don't necessarily see it until maybe you see a picture and you're, you you just, you look, oh my God, my dog was so fat. <laughs> I had no idea. It's another sign. Watch your dog like you'd watch your kid. Just watch, pay attention. And if you see your dog getting heavy, which is what you're talking about, do something about it. It's how much you're feeding your dog. Mm-hmm. And it's also what you're feeding your dog. Mm-hmm. It isn't just calories, as we're all finding out now. It's where those calories are coming from. It all makes a difference. And we could, of course, do an entire episode just on that. And we probably ought to. Where where are your calories coming from? Let, let's do that, okay? And do you want to talk a little bit about supplements in terms of prevention, in the context of prevention? And I guess the big story can be, are supplements what they say they are? And how do we know? And in so many cases, we know they are not. So what do we do as consumers? How do we choose? (sighs) Sorry, it's a big one, right? (laughs) So that totally is its own story. But I do get that common question. And so I think it's you're right. It's a good one. It's a good one. So people ask me, can I prevent hip dysplasia, CCL tear, Uh, you know, problems with their GI system? Can I give them a good immune system with supplements? Uh, You bring up the excellent point that the supplement does not replace a poor diet, right? So food includes the building box of making your body. There is no amount of vitamins that you can give that replaces the protein you need in your body, right? Um, And so make sure first that you're looking at supplements for what you want them to do, (laughs) right? And are are they really actually going to be able to achieve that? And then the second piece of that you asked, uh, geez, how do we trust a supplement that it does what it says it does? (laughs) What happens in the supplement world is that supplements are not regulated in the same way as drugs are. So you're right to ask that question. 
a lot of companies out there will take research from another product and say, you know, this herb, for example, uh, helps to reduce inflammation in your body. And ours is just as good as theirs because it has exactly the same ingredients. Well, maybe, but except that nobody's actually studied if how they've packaged that supplement can get into your GI system and your cells and all that stuff. That's called bioavailability. <laughs> so the long and short is, yeah, no, it's really hard to trust a, a supplement. And how do you know if you need one? And how do you know it's actually preventative for a specific problem? And so my, my easy button, right? I'm always looking like, how do, I, how do I help you and give you information this short amount of time? There is a company that does third-party testing of supplements for dogs. And so at the NASC seal, they, they have a whole list of companies that they service. Um, the Supplement Council tests these supplements to at least guarantee that what it says in the bottle is in the bottle. That's a good start. And then you want to know, did they actually do any research for the thing they're trying to solve? Um, for example, does giving your dog glucosamine actually prevent arthritis? Right. This is so disturbing. I will, I will give you one tiny snapshot for the for the episode where you you ultimately dive into like supplements and specifically for arthritis. Oh, no. So I was at this giant meeting of 15,000 veterinarians this January in Florida. And the lecturer stood up and she put up a slide that said, glucosamine and chondroitin is no longer supported for the use of arthritis, either in treatment or prevention. So there's a couple pieces to that, right? One, they say it's not efficacious. Okay, well, what are you trying to do? Does it solve pain? No. Let me say that again. Does it solve pain? No. So they're using pain scores to try to judge this supplement for efficacy about arthritis. That's not what it does, guys. Okay? What so does it do? joint supplements <laughs> are intended to decrease the degradation of the tissues. Sure. That has nothing to do with pain. Okay. And, and turns out glucosamine and chondroitin, while they are the pieces of what's in your joint fluid and your cartilage, don't actually get into the cells by eating it. Okay. The bioavailability, the eating of the glucosamine and chondroitin as molecules is very, very low. Hmm. Five to 10%? Through supplementation. Yes. You could have this really beautiful third-party tested supplement, uh, mm -hmm. right? That is what it says is in everything, but actually can't get into your cells. Okie dokie. Bioavailability, Drew. Here we go again. Dude. All right. <laughs> it is the hot topic. Excuse me one second. <laughs> what? <laughs> you yeah. should have seen my Do you my know how face. much money we've spent spending on these supplements over the years? Oh, don't even do it. Is there a sponsor we can find about bio, some bioavailability sponsor that we could find? It's my favorite topic. I love it. Yeah. So the best way to do that is to find a supplement that's on that list from the NASC that first at least guarantees that the bottle says what it is. And then okay. you go in and dive into their research that says, one, that it has bioavailability because that's an actual test. Okay. And two, that it has efficacy for what you're trying to do. Okay. So yes, the answer is yes. We need to be very careful about our supplements. The average person who sees me with a dog that has arthritis is probably spending somewhere between two and $300 a month on supplements. 
Okay. Two and three hundred dollars per month. Per month times I don't know when do they get arthritis? Well, if we're doing a good job and we find it when they're younger-ish, four or five years old, then maybe they do that for what ten years. Cool. Would you mind offering <laughs> your point of view on multivitamins? Your nutritionist might be better equipped to do that. What okay. I would say is part of the quest we have as pet owners is to find a food that contains what the dogs need. The challenge that we have is the FCO requirements or for what should be in the food were made in the 70s. Yeah. And we know that as people, when we eat vegetables that have not been raised in good soil, that they lack vitamins. So in general, it's very difficult to know that we're getting what we're supposed to be getting, right? So what you'll read on a dog food bag is that it meets AFCO requirements, which may or may not be enough to get to optimal nutrition. So the very long and short is, I don't have big objections to multivitamins because I understand what we're trying to do. What's important is that that does not replace the dog food quality that we're trying to feed them. Yeah. Right? Well, and what you're saying there is you're, you're spending all this extra money, time, effort, thought on supplementation when maybe we need to be thinking about the quality and sourcing of those food ingredients. What's, what's your favorite word, Mark? Starts with a B. Bioavailability. <laughs> yeah. And, and really feeding better quality rather than worrying so much about quantity and supplementation. Is yeah. that where we're going here? Totally. I think in this prevention section, is there something that you want to give our listeners some advice about prevention in general? Instead of going into the weeds about early screenings or supplementation or exercise, what is the best well-rounded advice you might offer in terms of prevention? Those practical daily tips, those things they can do on a daily. Sure, sure. So general prevention tips. You know, I'm a quality of life doctor, so it means that my practice is focused on providing physical health and that I want, like you do, for you to be able to hang out with your dog where they feel good and you feel good and you get to do all the things you want to do. So when we're talking about prevention in general, there is preventing disease, right? There is preventing physical breakdown, like prevention is a big word. So I would say in general, I think you really hit it to start with is learn how to look at your dog. Are they comfortable? Do they have the right energy level, right? Are they happy? And the happy is a human word. So mm -hmm. forgive me for using that word, but that's my story. Could you operationalize happy for me? <laughs> yeah, that's, that's my story and I'm sticking to it. It means, are they, if you were a dog, are they enjoying some benefit to being alive every day? One of the things that I think we do, you guys talked about in your very first episode in terms of like letting a dog be a dog, right? So see if you ever catch yourself doing this. You look over your dog and he's laying down and he's being quiet. And you go, oh, what a good dog. That's our definition of being a good dog. Yeah. Is that fun for him? Is he getting a lot out of that right now? If that's 90% of his life, is that cool? Is that what, right? So really look at your dog and know what joy looks like. Yeah. And know that just being alive is not joy. Being quiet and laying still is not joy. What gives you joy? 
So I like what you said. Watch your dog. Pay attention to what percentage of his life feels like he's experiencing joy. And know that physical activity changes your mental state, how you breathe, how you feel, the amount of confidence you have, how much strength you have, right? Know that physical activity is critical every day. And a walk around the block might or might not be enough, right? Hmm. Because that maybe that's good mental exercise, but you, you really got to have these big pictures of health in terms of preventing problems. That system, knowing that your dog is joyful, well-exercised, and mentally stimulated is the very best place to start. And I think that's a way to define wellness. That's what yeah. that sounds like to me. That's what yeah. wellness is. And that's, when I hear that word wellness, I don't think of it medically. I think of it as a lifestyle. Wellness is a lifestyle and wellness is a state of mind. And paying attention to your dog is part of, like you would pay attention to your children, is a state of mind because you have your dog's wellness at heart. You care. So I think we've offered a huge amount of information here and I can't really thank you enough. I mean, we could go on for days, right? But I can't, re- I can't, I can't <laughs> really- It's a series or something. Oh, okay, we can do that. We can think we, we can do that. And I think we should do that because the information is the, is the currency here. Dr. Bartling, you said you're a quality of life doctor and you're also a quality of life professional and you've improved the quality of my life by being here and Mark's and we really appreciate you coming today and we look forward to hopefully continuing this conversation with you. You're such a valuable resource to everybody. So we thank you very much for being here. And I thank you for all you do for the dogs and for their pet parents. That's our show. But before we go, I want to give a final shout out to our sponsors, starting with Wonder Walker Harnesses. This versatile dog harness is great for all dogs, especially those who really pull against your leash. You'll notice a difference on your walks right away, and it should give you peace of mind to know you're using the best equipment, which matters a lot when it comes to keeping you and your dog safe and comfortable. Go to wonderwalkerbodyhalter.com and use promo code LOVEDOG at checkout. That's LOVEDOG, all one word, wonderwalkerbodyhalter.com. Also, Fig and Tyler. If you're a pet parent, you want to get your hands on these premium treats that the pros use, they have a special offer just for our listeners. Go to figandtyler.com now and put LOVEDOG in the promo code at checkout and you'll receive 10% off your first order. They've also got an amazing program for pet professionals. If you want to sign up, go to the Pet Pros tab on figandtyler.com and click Join Program. Make sure you put Love Dog in the Referral tab. You're going to love the Pet Pro perks. These are simply the best treats you can buy. F-I-G-A-N-D-T-Y-L-E-R.com. Check them out. Hey there, it's Mark. Thank you for listening. And I just want to say thank you to all of our listeners for joining us. You matter to us. You're going to make us successful. And a very heartfelt thank you to you. And if you have any thoughts about how we might make the show better or just about what you'd like to hear from us, you're welcome to email us. And I encourage you to email us at 
podcast at lovedog.com. So go ahead and do that with any thoughts or any ideas that you have. Also want to say for a last time, thank you to Fig and Tyler, our sponsor. They make the best, the highest quality treats for your dog. I've been using them. They are great. And I suggest going over to Fig and Tyler. That's F-I-G-A-N-D-T-Y-L-E-R.com, figandtyler.com and have a look at what they offer. And we've set up some discounts for you, whether you're just a pet parent or whether you're a trainer, and they will take care of you. I seriously recommend that. I just want to talk for a second about some of the takeaways from the show, because the show with Dr. Bartling was extraordinary, I thought, and I learned a lot. Number one, focus on the difference between chronic pain and acute pain. And when it happens, go get it diagnosed, go find its root causes, and go get some good treatment for it. Two, from day one that you get your dog, whether it's an eight-week-old puppy or whether it's a six-year-old or seven-year-old rescue that you've adopted, watch that dog be as vigilant as you possibly can from day one because what you want to notice are any changes in behavior and or movement. And if you start to see that, it could be coming from pain that the dog isn't able to tell you about. Dogs often don't show pain. So be vigilant, watch, be on the lookout for any changes. And if you see any, go have it checked out. And third, especially if the dog is young, but no matter what, work with a pain management specialist. If in fact, some of the problems are coming from pain, do what you can at any age to rehabilitate that dog, give it its best chance at recovery and do what you can to keep the dog on as few meds not as many meds, as few meds as possible, which is not to say meds won't be necessary, especially at the beginning, but the goal we believe should be as few meds as possible. If you liked the show and if you found the show helpful, there are a number of ways you can support us and we're going to ask you to do that. You can follow us on your favorite podcast app, follow or subscribe. All of the content, all the shows right now are free. There's no charge. We have no plans in the near future to charge you. So go ahead and follow us and get the alerts to when new episodes come out. Word of mouth is always amazing. If you liked the show, if you found it helpful, if you have a friend or a family member, or just know someone who you think might find it helpful as well, can you tell them? Maybe send them a link. Whatever you can do, that would really help us. You can go to Kofi.com. That's K-O-F, like Frank, I.com forward slash love dog and you can buy us a cup of coffee we set up the minimum donation at four dollars which is about the cost of a decent cup of coffee you can give more if you like the show that much more that would be extremely helpful to us as we try to market this show and scale this show and let more and more people know about it and lastly follow us on our social channels at love dog news for instagram same for tiktok coming up we have a great show ahead on puppy mills and what we can do to get rid of them We've just completed an incredible interview with a neuroscientist over in Scotland, Dr. Kathy Murphy, and we're going to do a two-part series with her. And we have an incredible show that we're going to be recording in early March with a holistic veterinarian from uh, Tucson, Arizona, and that is going to be extraordinary as well. So we're very excited about the future. Keep listening. Thank you. And until next time, happy howling. Do not make your dog round. It is not cute. Don't do it. Don't do it.